Welcome, and thank you so much for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. I am your host, Nick Fortino, and today I'm with my guest, Dr. Henry Emmons. Welcome, Dr. Emmons. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to have you. I've been aware of you and your work for, I remember it was about 2010 that I came across your book, The Chemistry of Joy. And so I'll I'll flash that to those of you who can see the visual here who are watching on YouTube. There's a chemistry of joy. And then about maybe four years after that, you wrote the chemistry of calm. And then more recently, you co-wrote with your co-author, David Alter, staying sharp. So congratulations on successfully writing multiple books. That is difficult to do. You are right. <laughs> it is difficult. Just out of curiosity, what, what what would you say is one of the most difficult things about writing a book? Well, um, as a, a friend of mine who makes his living as a writer, as he put it, the secret to good writing is to get a giant... Um, velcro strap and lock yourself into the seat Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just it's a matter of finding the rhythm the discipline you know as a clinician um you know with a busy practice it's just really hard to carve out that kind of time and Mm -hmm. so i managed to be able to work in a way that i could cut back my clinical work during the summers and that's when i did most of my writing Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, writing. I, I I was so intimidated about the idea of writing a whole book, but when it comes right down to it, it's it's just in writing a lot of shorter pieces and being able to tie them together. And in some ways, I think it's it's harder. I found it harder in recent years to to write something really succinct and uh, you know really shorter and tight and and have it really convey something worthwhile in a Mm. lot fewer words (laughs) Mm. right and it seems that there's a greater demand for succinct brief versions of insight expressions of insight given the bombardment of information that most people experience isn't that the truth yeah well again you know congratulations and, and thank you for contributing such valuable resources you know, and I think I think honestly, our conversation today is really centered on the topic: how can we become more joyful? How can we become calmer? How can we overcome depression? How can we overcome anxiety? And how can we sustain our well-being and our cognitive acuity through the whole lifespan? Um, and you know, I think, of course, there are many people who are very interested in these topics. Um, I'd like to start by talking to you about your education, your training. You are a medical doctor, you are a psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. yet you strike me as a unique psychiatrist in a sense, as a psychiatrist who has deliberately sought out education from other realms that I take, I understand you were not necessarily exposed to in your, you know, med school curriculum, such as you know, various psychological sources, as well as the wisdom of Eastern traditions, which you incorporate and synthesize very nicely in your books. Um, So can you just talk about your 
experience in your psychiatric training? Let's start there, and then I'll have a follow-up questions. What was your experience of psychiatric training? Yeah, great question. Well, I, I went into psychiatry at a time when I, I think historically there was a big shift, and I was right caught right in the middle of that shift from a more psychologically based um, profession to one that was just fully embracing the brain and brain chemistry and medication. And, you know, it was, I think Prozac actually came out as a medication while I was in medical school. And of course, that that was a big part of that shift. But um, so I was, I was drawn to psychiatry because I felt that I would be able to work more naturally with the whole person that I could do, um, you know, do some some aspects of getting to know people more deeply, of doing some soul-based work, you know, spiritual work. I was drawn to all of those things, you know, just as a person, as a human being. And then I got into training and I chose, specifically chose a program that had a very strong history of what was then called biopsychosocial model. And now I think you might say mind body or a holistic uh, model. That was their tradition. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, I found that it wasn't it wasn't very strong anymore. And you know, as soon as I got into the work of being a psychiatrist, it was very clear very early on that, um, being able to do those things, being able to work with the whole person was going to be tough. I'd have to to find a way to make that work because it was not it was not the norm and it was not what the jobs that were available uh, really lent themselves to. Mm. And just so that listeners have a sense of the timeline of when that shift occurred, when was this that you were in that training? Sure. Yeah, so I uh, I started my psychiatry training in. I uh, got to think for a second, 1985. Mm. And I, I believe I'd have to look this up. I believe Prozac came out a year or two before that. I think it came out in 83 or 84, mm. um, you know, as the first, you know, new agent, novel SSRI agent. And it it just was a, you know, back then there was so much excitement in, in within the medical community. And I, I would have to say, even in the psychological community about these new medications kind of being able to solve everything. Right. Yeah. That, and it's just interesting, you know, to look back on that now about 40 years later um, and what the evolution of that looks like. And, you know, kind of on that note in your chemistry of joy book, you talk about your journey toward mindfulness and toward studying other aspects of the human being beyond a particularly biological understanding of a human. And there's a paragraph you wrote, um, I kept encountering the same assembly line mentality and reductionist philosophy for a field that is psychiatry you're talking about, for a field that had begun with such a broad view of human nature, psychiatry seemed to have devolved into a mechanistic vision of brain chemicals and medications. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can just 
elaborate on what you mean by the assembly line mentality that you've encountered in the field of psychiatry? Yeah, sure. Well, my um, my first job was working in an HMO setting. And if any any of the listeners have worked or been a even been a client in a traditional HMO, it does feel a little bit like an assembly line where, you know, every every professional has their own very circumscribed role. My role as a psychiatrist was very clearly defined. You know, it was um, assessing, doing crisis management and prescribing medication and then following or monitoring those medications. It was about all that we were given in our purview to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the idea of um, doing psychotherapy, doing group therapy, you know, doing spending more time getting to know clients, it just was not the case, at least in that setting. Mm -hmm. So I I did that work for for five years. And it was it was one of the earlier HMOs. So I don't think that everyone had been, this wouldn't have been everyone's experience in that era, but it was mine. And then um, when I left it, the HMO, I I had this kind of naive notion that I would have, I would be able to do, you know, whatever I chose to do, I could, you know, see patients as long as I wanted for, you know, as often as I wanted which might have been the case had I gone right into private practice, but it was not the case where I ended up, which was another system, not an HMO model, but still a big system, lots of rules and regulations, insurance, as everybody knows now, um, kind of drove the the bus on changing really how we how we all practice. And it just became clear to me that, uh, if I was going to work and and just be with people in the way I really wanted, I I, I was eventually going to have to find a way to do that on my own. So <clears throat> I would love for you to kind of share with us how your thinking has evolved and particularly around the merits and the utility of drug treatment. Um, I noticed, and I, I don't know if I'm reading into this something that isn't really there or if I'm onto something, but in my read of the chemistry of joy, I detect a stronger belief and enthusiasm about the utility and merits of drug treatment than I do detect in the chemistry of calm written four years later. Also in the chemistry of calm, it's um, um, the subtitle that, you know, the chemistry of calm I guess it's part of the subtitle, but a powerful drug-free plan to quiet your fears and overcome your anxiety. And then in the back of the book, you know, it's a, you say, can you really treat anxiety without prescription drugs and antidepressants? The answer is yes. And I'm aware that even in the chemistry of calm, you say that you still recognize that in some cases there's a need for drug treatment. Um, but you warn against the adverse effects, which can be very serious and often ironically um, exacerbating exactly what the person is attempting to relieve. So I would just love to understand like how you your thinking has evolved and especially now today 
on the merits and the utility of psychiatric drug treatment? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. It's a good observation because you're you're right. My my thinking has shifted uh, over the years. I I was I was never in love with prescribing or or with turning first to <clears throat> to medications and. I felt it early in my my practice, even when I was in my first job, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I felt early on in my practice, even in my first job with the HMO, that um, we were becoming too quick to prescribe medication. And yet I could see the merit in medication treatment, I think particularly for people who had um, what I think of as clinical depression, <clears throat> major depression, if you will, I think there's a role for for really good medication treatment. My my concerns, which became bigger over the years, my concerns are one that we're not using medications very judiciously. We're using you know high doses, big combinations, you know multi uh, prescriptions, and it's it it becomes so quickly complex and i think very difficult to to really have a good handle on i don't think there's very many people who do it really well so so one concern is just that i i don't think we're cautious enough about how we use medications but another concern and this is probably my biggest one is that i think that something shifted with these new medications that we felt were so safe, so well tolerated, so kind of uniformly effective, that they started to be used for all kinds of other problems that would not have been considered serious enough to warrant medications just a few years before that. So, you know, we're, we 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 diagnose people with depression, for example, um, we're not, and we're not very careful, in my view, with how we use the terminology. We diagnose people with depression who do appear or feel depressed, but their their symptoms are so clearly caused by situational stresses that you know if you really know the appropriate way to use the diagnostic terms, it, it should be called an adjustment disorder or adjustment reaction. It's a stress-related problem. It's a temporary problem. And what's happened, I think, is that um, we started using these medications to give people relief from those. I don't have a problem with that. But we weren't also giving them tools to be able to deal with the stresses better. Uh, We weren't helping them resolve whatever underlying concerns there were. You know, I I even felt there was a time where my psychological colleagues were referring patients to me for medication prescribing long before they should have, that there should have been more time given for, you know, a chance for people to recover or improve with, with therapy. So there was this big pendulum shift, and I think I was responding to that or maybe reacting uh, against that. Mm. Um, but also, I do think there's a difference between anxiety disorders and depression. 
if if depression is defined a little more tightly, that I think uh, I think there's so many other ways to approach anxiety and so many so many things people can do to develop more skills and use some other strategies and techniques and natural therapies, I think can be quite effective with that, with that population. So I think, you know, medications are, are just overprescribed. They're used too quickly for things they shouldn't be used for. And, and even to this day, we fail to recognize that being on these medications for long periods of time, people can have a hard time getting off of them. Right. Um, and that and then you can create a whole new set of problems that that really weren't necessary. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I, I commend you for kind of being a critic on the inside. I think that the critics within the field of psychiatry are ultimately going to have the greatest influence on the prescribing practices of fellow psychiatrists. And I know that it's difficult to be a critic on the inside, in a sense, to be in that field, to have undergone that education process, to be perhaps surrounded by other colleagues and, and to and to criticize the practice. So I, I commend you for that. And I want to talk about everything you just alluded to, you know, these other strategies that and do the trick. Um, but right before that, I want I want to kind of bring this up. And it's funny, I've kind of mentioned on this podcast, I think, you know, people have sort of gotten to know me to some degree as a host and know that I've said multiple times that I'm I'm always I'm a very agreeable person, excessively so to the point where I often will like avoid confrontation, I'm uncomfortable, even like, disagreeing with people or pushing back on something so for whatever that's worth that's kind of my qualifier coming into this but um what i want to bring up is the idea that sometimes people need medication and i know that you know you, you state that in both of these books and i'm i'm not convinced that that's true and i want to hear you make the case for that and i'll just say you know that I think that that is somewhat equivalent to saying some people need alcohol. And if we imagine a, a thought experiment where alcohol was the drug developed in psychiatry that started being used and it became common practice, I think that had that been the case, some people might today be saying, well, some people do need alcohol. And I just think that I see their utility and I don't think I'm ready to say that there's no place for them, but I don't, I'm not convinced that anyone needs them. Again, I, I believe they're useful, but anyway, go on. I think that's a, I think that's a fair point. I, I'm not sure I would actually disagree with what you just said. Um, I think where I'm coming from is that I also see quite a few patients who carry some shame around being on medication or or get the message that you know that there's something wrong with them to be using it or you know that it's bad or that it's going to harm them and i think where i land is is somewhere in the middle maybe a, probably more towards the end of the spectrum that you're describing where i 
I think that people can live well without medication. Um, and also given our current state of, of treatment and knowledge and available resources, I, I do think that it gives people relief um, at times. And I think that's that's worthy, you know, that, you know, I I believe I, I see this all the time that that people can get better more quickly. Um, and just in terms of pure symptom relief. Okay. And and I I don't personally have a problem with that. My concern is a little more what I was saying before that once the problem is resolved, if it's not a clearly recurring illness, um, I think the medication should be withdrawn before it's been on board for so long that, you know, that that becomes a very difficult thing to do. Right. Well, that makes sense. And, and I, you know, and I want to acknowledge that in all of my criticism of modern psychiatric practices, when it's kind of the extreme opposite, you know, not what you're describing, but the the very quick diagnosis and prescription and giving people the impression that they need to be on this for the rest of their life and that whole <clears throat> common practice. Um, I, I'm a fierce critic of that. I think that's doing tremendous harm. And, um, you know, I, and in all my, all my criticism, I think it's important that I acknowledge I'm not working as a clinician with the most extreme cases of psychosis and depression and panic attacks and things like that. I mean, I do have field experience and I work in the prison system. And so I see some extreme cases of various uh, mental conditions, but, you know, just to be fair, I, I understand that whether you are the physician or the family member of a person who is extremely disturbed in some way, I completely understand the desperation there. And I agree that it's a problem that if we um, put a sense of shame on people for taking any kind of pill. There should be no shame. And everyone's just trying to feel better or support their loved ones. And I respect that completely. And I just think we have to be very honest about what the treatment really is. And it's not like a cure for an illness. It's just like a psychoactive substance that makes you feel better. And that's useful. And I'm not against biological interventions. I think there's tremendous value in intervening on the biological level. And if that's with the psychoactive substance and and it's truly helpful, then I support. I support that as long as we're being very honest about the nature of the treatment. And as you're saying, as long as we are being proactive about preventing this from becoming a dependency. Well, yeah, I would respond if if you'd like to any of that. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that I did when writing the chemistry of calm was to to try to dig into the history of psychiatric medications, and it was very informative for me um, because throughout history there have been various substances that have been discovered and thought to be a panacea, basically. Mm -hmm. um, alcohol was one of those at one time. And um, some other, you know, what we think of as uh, 
psychoactive street drugs were at one time, you know, really considered to be that. And then, of course, there was the Valium type drugs, the benzodiazepines, and even before that, phenobarbital. And, you know, there's just been this, um, this recurring theme of finding an external solution, thinking that it's just going to be the greatest and that there's no problems with it and prescribing it, you know, to huge numbers of people. And then after a few years, sometimes it's a couple of decades or more, finding out that in fact, these drugs we thought were totally safe, always universally helpful. They're not those things and that they create a sense of dependence. And I, I think that in a, I don't know how long, but maybe another generation or, or so, I think we'll look back at the current medications and, and see them in much the same way. You know, that I guess the, maybe the, most favorable way to look at them is that they're a transitional technology mm-hmm. and you know it's the best we had at our at our, our fingertips at any given point mm-hmm. but it's not it's not what we thought it was right that makes sense yeah well let's let's talk about you know <clears throat> other solutions and more endure like solutions that bring about positive changes that are far more enduring and thorough and you know you do such a great job of offering such a wide variety of solutions and that is the thing i think we're always grasping for a panacea we're always grasping for the solution the answer or the cause you know it goes both ways and we are psychology is just so complex. We are so complex as individuals. We are unique genetically. We have our temporary biological conditions based on our eating habits and our lifestyle. We have our social circles in which we are nested and all of the relationship dynamics there. We have our entire past and all of the conditioning that that had done on us we have the world at large we have the state of our natural world etc etc and then and and so we are just incredibly complex and so it's i do think in rare cases there's a relatively singular cause some extreme abnormality on a neurological level um you know one of my brilliant students recently gave me a put a put a a case study on my radar of a 40-year-old man who started experiencing pedophilic urges and they became extremely strong and to the point where he couldn't resist but to act on them and you know made sexual advances toward his own stepdaughter and of course you know everyone was alarmed and addressed it head on and he was um you know, diagnosed as a pedophile, he was sentenced to either, it would be either jail or a rehabilitation program for pedophiles, and went to the rehabilitation program, even in that process of kind of getting evaluated, he was making sexual advances toward the nurses. And long story short, the urges just never were eliminated. And then he started having migraines, went to the hospital, they did an MRI on him, discovered a tumor in his prefrontal cortex, you know, the the orbitofrontal 
lobe, right? Kind of above the eye socket. And naturally they remove the tumor. And when they remove the tumor, his pedophilic urges mm -hmm. were gone. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough too, in that case study, months later, the urges began to return and that was a sign maybe we should check your brain again and sure enough the tumor was growing again and they removed it again and once again all ped pedophilic urge is gone and so i use that i'm bringing that up right now the relevance of that is because we were just saying you know maybe sometimes there is a relatively singular cause and this is a good example of that and in those cases, then obviously the solution is just as straightforward as to address that singular cause. And so two points to make related to that. One, I do believe that we need to be doing more brain scans to eliminate possibilities like that. I think there's many instances where something like that may have been going on in someone's brain, but no one ever scanned their brain. And then they were just treated in some other way to kind of manage the symptoms, but the root cause remained in place. This is, um, you know, there's another psychologist by the name of Daniel Amen, spelled A-M-E-N. And he's an advocate for this idea that we need to be looking under the hood. We, we need to start by looking at people's brains and ruling out um, severe neurological abnormalities like that one. Because again, if it's if that's the cause, then the solution is straightforward. So that's that's one point to make about that, um, that we need to be doing more brain scans and that sometimes it's not all that complicated. It's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, but in but in most cases, it is way more complicated than that. And the various aspects of an individual there are contributing factors to a person's condition coming from all of the dimensions of this person's life and therefore the solution is going to be equally multifaceted and so again back to kind of your work you do a great job of offering a multifaceted set of solutions for people to overcome anxiety and depression so Maybe we'll start talking about these solutions by having you discuss um, the different types that people might be. I know you have framed it in Ayurvedic terms, which I love. And my wife is an Ayurvedic health counselor who trained with uh, Dr. Vasant Lad, who was considered to be one of the most, you know, foremost experts in Ayurveda living today. And so this kind of hits close to home and I know my wife appreciates it. Um, but maybe you can we can start by discussing the way a person might begin to kind of typify themselves a little bit and typify their depression or anxiety. Sure. So yeah, let me let me preface that by just saying that I I I try to do this dance between simplicity and complexity. Mm. And I, it's not, it's not easy to do, but I feel like that's, that's a way I can really contribute because uh, I do understand the complexity and, and I'm always trying to translate it into more simple, understandable terms. And so that's where this notion really came from uh, for me that we can't, we can't just, um, easily assume that everybody has their own completely unique pattern and cause 
for for illness because it's just too much. You know, we right. can't. It's probably true that everybody is just a little different and has similar needs. Pardon? But I was, but I, but I totally get your point. Like I'll, I, I yeah. love like the fact that literally your genetic code is unlike any other genome that has ever existed in, in your life experience. Like you are a once ever phenomenon, and that doesn't mean that there's no one similar enough to you to yeah. where we can like in, infer things about you based on what we know about them. And and anyway, go ahead, please continue. Yeah. But you're making a good point. Yeah. So, so in my first few years of practice, and it actually did take a few years seeing a lot of patients, it, it gradually dawned on me that, that there are repeatable patterns that I was just seeing over and over again. And so let's just take depression for a moment. Um, we have basically one term that we use that we call it depression, but it, they, People who come in with complaining of a depressed mood do not all look alike. But again, we can't take the whole universe of all the different people. So um, there were these three patterns that I was seeing over and over again, where some people clearly had more of an anxious presentation, a lot of worry, sense of fear, sense of insecurity, of not being enough, unworthiness, and so forth. I think that's the most common of the patterns, and I think it has a lot to do with the stress that we all know about and all share. I think that really heightens this. The second pattern, which is a little harder to recognize, and I, I think it's especially important um, if you're prescribing medications or even natural therapies to recognize this. And that is um, people who are also, their brain is overactivated, just like the first type, but it's different. They don't just feel anxious, worried, or fearful. They feel more agitated, more revved up, um, overstimulated, overactivated. They might even be physically restless. Um, they tend to be, to ruminate more, wake up in the middle of the night and kind of churn things over. Um, and, and that's a different subtype. And oftentimes people who present that way become worse with antidepressants or at least with certain antidepressants. Um, and then the third type are people who are much more sluggish, slowed down. Um, you know, their mood is more likely to be sad or depressed rather than anxious or agitated, and um, hard to get up off the couch. Kind of the classic idea, notion of depression, but also a very common pattern for people who have seasonal or winter depression. So those three distinct patterns. Um, some people, you know, go from one to another or have features of all three, but they tend to be relatively distinct. And then, you know, as you were saying earlier about Ayurveda, I began studying Ayurveda a little bit later after I had already been noticing this. And I was just so struck. It's just like a light bulb saying, okay, this, this is kind of what they're describing, you know, thousands of years ago by observation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it fit very closely to what I was seeing, you know, just in my psychiatric population. And um, 
I loved it because they kind of normalized it. You know, they 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 also say this: we're just made differently. You know, we're we're built differently, and and when you're feeling like yourself and you're balanced and you know not overly stressed, it's a positive. You know, being this this what what I call an anxious subtype. It's a positive if you're not feeling anxious and stressed. You know, it, it makes you more creative, more mm-hmm. playful, more enthusiastic, and so forth. And I love that about you know that Ayurveda. They see that that normal aspect, and then when you're not yourself, it's just because you're out of balance. It's not because you're fundamentally flawed. Right. Uh, it's a temporary imbalance, and so let's find ways to get you back in balance. So it just fit very nicely with with that notion that we're not really broken here, you know, to your point about medications, again, it doesn't mean that you have to be on a medication the rest of your life to manage this. You are out of balance, though. And let's try to find the sources of that. And and that's where, you know, all the the, the com- complex variety of of these different interventions that I write about um, come into play because it's not always the same for everybody. You know, exercise is a pretty universally helpful thing, but, you know, the different kinds of exercise work better for these different subtypes and so forth. Right. And then just to kind of add more terminology into this, and especially for the people who are familiar with Ayurveda, which is an ancient, you know, science of life originating in India. Um, you know, the the view of the individual is that we have our primary constitution, which can be described with the terms vata, which is that anxious type or imaginative and uh, tend to be a thinner build and tend to be, you know, they have all these particular qualities that tend to be associated with this constitution. And there's a particular way in which a person will present if they are imbalanced, like you've been describing. And then I I would take it that the agitated version of depression would be the pitta type, the person who's a bit more prone to anger, who's fiery, who tends to be that sort of mesomorph, the more middle build. And then you have your kapha types who are the sluggish, depressed types when they're imbalanced and they tend to hold more weight on their body. And who knows, maybe they would benefit more from things like power lifting and things like that. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just think it's, it's helpful. Like we said, we can acknowledge how truly unique you are, and then also acknowledge that you fit nicely into some categories. And when you understand the categories that you fit into, it can be illuminating as to like, why I'm feeling like I'm feeling and how I, what I can do about that. So, okay, so we've kind of established that, that there are different types of people and different types of people experience different types of depression, or it looks different when they're feeling depressed. Um, what would you, what would you say for the person listening as they relate to one of these descriptions, you know, what can a person do with this information, mm-hmm. uh, along with, you know, read your book and hear the thorough answer, but just kind of briefly, what can a person do once they know what type they are? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, the the real value in this is 
is to be able to choose the remedies and the approaches that are going to be best suited to you, most efficient, most likely to be helpful. So it, it you know, you don't have to take the whole universe of of lifestyle choices or nutritional choices. You can you can be more focused, more honed in on what's going to be most likely to bring you back into balance. So, you know, nutrition would be a good example. Um, the diet that most of the traditional research says is best for everybody is a Mediterranean style diet. And there's lots of value in that. But I find it really helpful to, to really tease even that out into different patterns of eating, different food groups, different um, you know, ways of structuring your nutrition through the day that might be more likely to bring in bring a uh, anxious vata type into balance, for example, as compared to a kapha, more you know grounded sluggish type. Mm. And so you know we can make our choices. And you know it, in my book or even on my website, people can access food lists and um, and they're. I don't follow strictly the Ayurvedic food list, but they're they're going to be close. I think that would also be a great place to start. Mm. So making those choices, and then the like I mentioned earlier, different forms of exercise are probably going to be better depending on your constitution and the nature of your imbalance. Yes, yes. So I find myself really you know, advocating for the idea that if you're experiencing anxiety or depression, or you're overwhelmed with stress, or, or even something that is a little bit more um, particular, such as uh, any kind of proneness to maybe schizophrenic like symptoms or psychosis or things like that, even those more unique conditions, but especially anxiety and depression, I advocate for the idea that we we have to cover the bases, the basics of well-being as a first resort. And I one of my main critiques of, you know, the the general field of mental health is we tend to resort to very drastic measures before covering the basics. And it's I think we would be amazed and anyone who puts this into practice is amazed at how many of our ailments and conditions are resolved by covering the basics, which include as, you know, and, pe and people don't want to hear it because it sounds too boring or, or something like that. But it's like, we nutrition matters, you know, our brain consumes, you know, 25% of the nutrients that we take in. And whether it's regularizing blood sugar patterns or making sure that you have indeed all of the vitamins that you need, that matters very much. And that definitely affects our moods and our ability to function. And then also rest and sleep. You've talked about that in, in every one of your books. It's a key part of staying sharp is that a well-rested brain is a sharp brain. And this is another one where it's like, well, okay, yeah, but but seriously, what should I do? But if a person really took time to focus on, you know, regular, regularizing their sleep patterns, it, who knows what will be resolved? Probably a lot. And not only resolved, but enhanced. So nutrition and sleep, and then also 
social connection. That's a very basic need that perhaps is underemphasized in all of our talk about how to be mentally healthy. We we cannot be lonely. The, the, the detrimental effects of loneliness and a lack of connection are extreme. Yeah. And um, and additionally, I think a lack of movement and could, because, we you know, we say exercise and that's what we mean. But also, I think some people, they hear the word exercise and they immediately think of like running on a treadmill in a gym and they're averse to that idea. But it's just like move your beautiful body, get the blood flowing and, and move your beautiful body, dance hike, go outside and just move in ways that feel good, get in touch with your instincts. And then I would just add to that, that I I believe that meaning in life is also a basic. That's one of the basics. And for the person who is caught in like what Viktor Frankl described as the existential vacuum, where it's like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing or what I want to be doing. I have no, I'm not governed by survival instincts anymore. I don't have a tradition guiding me every day. And I don't even really know what I want in life. You're caught in this vacuum of meaninglessness. And I think that that is also a basic level thing to address is to make sure that we have a why to live and a, a something that really makes us feel alive and purposeful and needed and important and guided. So anyway, those are kind of my, that's my conception of what the basics are. Eat right, sleep right, move your beautiful body, have social connections and meaning in life. And if you've really covered those basics and some other can, some condition still persists, well, then we can address it much more effectively. But if you're not covering the basics, it's very difficult to see, well, what of all of this anxiety is really just a result of your sleep deprivation or your loneliness or your blood sugar imbalance, you know? So I know I'm hogging the microphone a little bit, but but thank you for listening. And and I, I'm curious to know, like, you know, what what you would have to add to this, you know, what are the basic free things people can do to stabilize and improve their mental health. Yeah. I, well, let me say, I, I agree completely with everything you just said. I think it's a great list. I, I, I want to reinforce a, a couple of things, but I, but I love it. And I'll just tell you my three main pillars mm-hmm. for mental health. I talk about this frequently and there there's definite overlap with what you said first is sleep which i think is the the absolute most important of the lifestyle measures when it comes to mental health and stability of mood um so sleep is one self acceptance mm. and meaningful connection mm. but those those are you know if you've got those three things you can you can cheat on your diet right. <laughs> you can probably right. You can probably, you know, um, mm-hmm. skip the exercise and, and you're going to be okay. But, you know, you've got to have those. And I think the, you know, the the social connection is just shown over and over and over again to be 
so protective, mm-hmm. mental health, but also for physical health. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to put a, a, a plug in for sleep because I, I I think this gets underemphasized in in the even in the mental health world. Um, I know I underemphasized it for years, and um, I have come to view sleep as the linchpin for recovery from most mental health crises mm. and also for prevention from it. So not to say that, you know, that's enough all by itself, but oh boy, if if you if you are having trouble sleeping and you've become depressed and you get your sleep improved, your chances of recovery are twice what they would have been without that. And that is hard science. It's shown over and over again. Mm. It's just incredibly important mm. i think of of you know diet as really being a key preventive kind of thing and i think of exercise as being almost a treatment that it, it can you know the right kind of movement and I, I also love the the notion of movement as opposed to exercise that can work just as effectively as medications in most instances but really sleep is like it's the thing that holds all of this together and it's just absolutely key if it goes then all those other things are not going to be enough mm-hmm. and if you get it back in you know in place then you know the other things aren't quite as important as they mm-hmm. would have been mm-hmm. which again is not the flashy answer by any means it's not i don't know it's like not what people want to hear i feel like sometimes but but i i think you're absolutely right about that and and there's there's the drastic and the subtle i think this is kind of a helpful way to think of things too it's easy to see that if you literally don't sleep any hours at all what do you feel like the next day you know and the the effects of that are very drastic they're severe they're obvious and then if you kind of go down the scale toward the subtle and ask the question, well, what if you're sleeping almost enough, but not quite enough, then of course, you're not going to have drastic effects of drowsiness and stuff the next day, but there will be subtle effects. And because they're subtle, you probably won't connect them to the lack of sleep because it wasn't that much of a lack of sleep. I didn't get five hours after all, or whatever it may be. And so I just think that's important too, that, that sometimes I think people's um subpar well-being is a combination of a lot of subtle symptoms that are the result of a lot of subtle imbalances in the lifestyle um so yeah as as i don't know straightforward as that answer is uh, it's it's one of the basics it's one of the basic pillars and then i like that you added self-acceptance i agree and even when people think of you know like maslow's hierarchy for example you know self-esteem is one of the basic needs and that was one of abraham maslow's most important insights in the 50s which was you know a basic need is something that if not met will produce neuroses and a neurosis for people listening is emotional instability and being prone to irrational interpretations of reality and that too you know, there's to me, I see it as a pretty smooth continuum from neurosis to psychosis. 
And somewhere along the line, we kind of draw a line arbitrarily and say like, okay, now this is psychosis, but it's continuous with neurosis. And even if you just look at neurosis, there's the more drastic and then the much more subtle. And to the degree that your basic needs are not met, you will be neurotic to that degree. And self-esteem, self-acceptance, the relationship we have with ourselves is one of those basic needs. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing that in too. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about mindfulness. Um, I've In my read, it's not as hot of a topic anymore. I feel like it had its moment, you know, and obviously the, the Buddhists listening are like, oh my gosh, this is not just a moment. This is a core principle of life forever. But again, it just in terms of like research interest and everything, I feel like it was got very popular, you know, in, in the 10s, the 2010s. And and I don't have this, I don't hear as much um, about mindfulness-based research. But of course, maybe that's because it has just kind of like settled in to our to our thinking, to our nomenclature, to our dialogue. Um, but yeah, talk talk to us about the role of mindfulness in your life personally, and about the impact of practicing mindfulness for everybody. Sure. Well, mindfulness was one of the things that really probably saved me as in the as a psychiatrist and got me um, out of that. Um, assembly line kind of psychiatric practice it was it was something i became aware of early in my my career so it was i think it was 1992 i learned about john kabat-zinn i'd been practicing for about 3 3 or 4 years and um i immediately went out and trained with him just learning to do this mindfulness based stress reduction that was a new thing at that time. And so I was able to come back to the HMO, tell them that I was going to do this group therapy, and they allowed me to do it. You know, mm-hmm. no questions asked, really. Um, they, they thought maybe it'd keep me happy for a while. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, other therapists in the organization started referring to it. And as a lot of people know, it it works, you know, it helps. So it helped a lot of people that were dealing with anxiety or depression or stress-related problems. So I taught that as a therapeutic intervention for for some years, practiced it myself, but but really it was a way for me to feel like I was connecting with something really meaningful in my work. And that was that was kind of life-saving as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Over the years, I have I have really worked at trying to make it more my own, you know, not trying to be John Kabat-Zinn anymore, but trying to be Henry Emmons and, and, uh, and again, finding ways to make it accessible and simple and, um, and be able to offer it to people that without needing to go through an eight week group. Mm -hmm. So again, probably simplifying it. And, and I, the way I view mindfulness practice has become very simple. I don't feel that people need to be Buddhist to do this. I don't feel that people even really need to become good meditators. I think a a little bit of, of practice or training at just being able to quiet your mind, 
which I think is increasingly important with all of the inputs that we are that are distracting us, myself included, you know, doing so much of my work now over on the computer. And, you know, I'm as addicted to my cell phone as any 60 something probably. (laughs) So, you know, I need to to have these antidotes. And I, I find that, you know, one of the real benefits is just having some ability to calm your own mind, quiet your own thoughts. But I think that the that's just sort of a prelude. And there, there, there are two really key benefits that you can get by doing a little extra work. And one of them is just to be able to see more clearly things as they are. So that might be what's really going on in my life. It might be what's really going on inside of me. You know, to to be able to see it more clearly and accept it to some degree, I find to be a very, very helpful practice for me personally, but also for people that I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the second, this this is going to sound even more nebulous, but I, to me, it's a real concrete, alive thing. And that is that I believe that it allows us to to work with our own heart, our own um, inner self in a way that we are, we're able to continually open ourselves further and further to, um, to the kind of meaning and connection that we were referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it's, that's the vehicle or the conduit, if you will, to having those genuine connections is to, to be able to stay open. Mm. There's so many things that happen to us and so many things we can read about, you know, if we really allow ourselves to bring in all the news feeds and whatnot that make us fearful or want to close up. And so it, to me, it feels like we just need a continual practice, a reminder to, to stay open. Beautiful. Yes. I like one of, I think everyone listening, you know, I know that some people are quite familiar with the term mindfulness. Some people may have a formal meditation practice and live in a mode of being mindful. And then and then some people listening might not be as familiar with the term, but you probably intuit what we're talking about, which is to be present in this moment now in a particular way. And I like one of the definitions that John Kabat-Zinn wrote about mindfulness was he said mindfulness is the the awareness that emerges when you pay attention on purpose and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience in the present moment mm-hmm. so it's got these qualities of it's purposeful and I'm, I'm purposefully showing up in this moment aware of what's happening now and there's the non-judgmental quality to it you know like you were describing even if it's something is you know uh, unpleasant it's it's kind of it reminds me too of just things I've learned in my training as a yoga teacher and in other contexts too that attachment and aversion are two ways in which we are kind of pulled out of the present moment in a sense that our mindfulness our mindful state can be interrupted 
And I don't mean attachment in terms of a healthy attachment to other people and loving relationships and things like that. I mean, attachment to pleasure and aversion from anything that's unpleasant. So that 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 comes to my mind too, to kind of walk this fine line where you're not excessively attached to things being a certain way in this moment, nor are we averse to being to things being a certain way in this moment, but we're accepting on the deepest level exactly how this moment is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I I think too about these terms that I've I've learned about, especially studying like cognitive science, which are endogenous and exogenous attention, which can be translated to basically voluntary or involuntary attention. And, you know, voluntary attention is like in, in this moment, anybody listening can shift attention to the feeling in their feet feet against the ground, shoes on their feet, you can suddenly feel that. And that shift of attention was done on purpose. And that's very different than when your attention is grabbed by a door slamming nearby. And so that second type is exogenous attention, that the type of attention that is captured by environmental stimuli. And I just feel like when we practice meditation and mindfulness, we're really exercising endogenous voluntary purposeful goal-oriented attention and that's highly beneficial and perhaps can help us stay sharp too it just Mm -hmm. improves our power to concentrate and to remain present in this moment yeah i i remember attending a workshop um done by richie davidson richard davidson Mm -hmm. the He's a neuroscientist from University of Wisconsin, for those who don't know him. But he's also done a lot of work over the years with the Dalai Lama, and he's just really well-respected and well-regarded. And I'm I'm paraphrasing. I'm probably getting it a little bit wrong. But I remember him saying that the, that the most important aspect of this type of spiritual practice, this Buddhist or mindfulness kind of spiritual practice, is simply to the ability to have a visceral experience. Mm. And what I think he meant by that, at least what I took from it, is it's, it's much like you were saying about being able to place your attention on your feet. It's, it's being able to turn inward and actually experience what's going on inside of you, inside of your body. And it's not a small thing, you know, that it, it is um, it is such an important skill to be able to place our attention where we want it to be in that sense, but also to be able to, to have not just an awareness, but an actual felt experience of what's going on inside of us. Mm, Yes. And this is kind of the basis of any kind of somatic psychological therapy technique. Um, This, even that term, you know, felt sense is, is common in the somatic psychology literature. Um, And it's the idea too, with like somatic psychology is that these, when you, when you do this, when you, um, 
attend to the feelings within your own body, it's not it's not just that you're feeling your body, but that your body's sensation is always providing information that is actually relevant to your emotions, to your psychology, to your mental state. And so to first be able to detect those signals, to collect that information, to be in touch with all of those feelings is the first step in being able to then kind of work with your body to process emotions. And, and that that's kind of a good segue into the next question, perhaps the one more question I want to ask you, which is talk to us about the connection between the mind and the body. When I speak about this, you know, I, I teach psychology at the college level, and I often refer to your books when I raise this topic. Um, because I mean, even just by the title, you can tell that you're connecting, you know, we're talking about chemistry, that's your body. And we're talking about joy. That's something that is emotional, psychological, and yet there's a chemistry of joy. And so that for everything psychological, there's something biological. So just please share with us your, your understanding of the connection between the mind and the body and what the implications of that connection are. So let me say first that um, I believe that we use these, these terms and separate them in our mind simply because we need to in order to talk about it. I don't actually think that there is a separation or difference between mind or body. I really just even intuitively that that doesn't feel right to me. I think that's something we've we've done with language and we've done through our minds because we're trying to understand and parse things out. But I actually think, you know, that that we humans are whole beings. Yeah. We're not actually these different parts. And yet it it helps us to be able to think about these different parts and how they connect and how to how to really facilitate them really being one and really working well together. Mm -hmm. So I believe that when we are really healthy, when we are really ourselves, that the mind and the body are working as one. They're they are a, a single unit. Um, and there's there's a sense of harmony, a sense of unity, of connection that is there's no separation. Mm. Um, but but there also are these these conduits, you know, these information highways between the the brain and the gut, for example, or the brain and the heart, you know, the vagus nerve and vagal theory that is as I think has been really helpful at allowing people to understand this in a different way and and think of some other avenues for um, reducing symptoms that again don't involve medication so so I think that um I think it's really really helpful to remember that if there's something happening in your body as a whole or in other parts of your body, it is also affecting your brain. Mm -hmm. The brain is not this separate mm -hmm. isolated organ that's, you know, not impacted. Um, for example, if you have systemic inflammation, if your, your diet is such, or your lifestyle is such that you've got inflammation in your, your gut or your joints or your, 
your gums or what have you. Well, you've also got it in your brain then, you know, and we're beginning to recognize that that is one of the really common causes of what we call depression. Mm. So it's this, you know, kind of really understanding that, yeah, what I put in my mouth is going to affect the health and state of my brain, maybe a few hours later or, you know, and the way that I move my body is going to have an impact on my emotions and Mm. so forth. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's not obvious to see that there may very well be a connection of what I eat for lunch and the thoughts I think at 3 p.m. That's not a connection we tend to make, but that's actually a reasonable connection to make. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I I love this philosophical topic, you know, the the mind-body mystery and, and then without necessarily trying to bring in, you know, too many philosophical rabbit holes here. um, I think the question of consciousness is fascinating, of course, and the distinction between the word mind and the word consciousness is worth addressing because sometimes people are using them interchangeably, sometimes we're not. Um, I find in speaking about this topic with so many people that I think there are some people who um maybe create too much of a distinction between the mind and the body and then some people perhaps don't see a distinction that really is there and i do agree with you that it's one system but perhaps it really is two facets of one system and i think that it's a it's an interesting thought experiment or just a question of like what is a thought <laughs> And what exactly is this phenomenon of a thought you think? Or or in this moment, if if everyone listening imagines a rainbow and you really like create an image of a rainbow in your mind, which I know now that we are all doing, and then ask the question, like where exactly in this physical world is that rainbow? And that is what starts to really awaken the mysterious because the answer is i don't know because if we look into your brain of course we would just see neurological activity electrochemical signals being transmitted so the brain the rainbow's not in your head as much as it feels like that it's obviously at the same time not separate from that neurological activity because if there was no neurological activity no rainbow in your mind um, but to me, I just I, I think that the distinction is fun to think about because there really is like what some people refer to as qualia or just purely mental images in the form of like the image of a rainbow or the thought that you think when you think to yourself, <clears throat> I did a good job today, like that voice in your head. What is that exactly, philosophically speaking? And I just think it's 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 a fascinating philosophical exploration to kind of dive into this think through it but ultimately i do agree with you that they are inseparable and the state of our bodies is reflected in the state of our mind and vice versa when it comes to the the causal connection i i think again it's it's tricky because 
when I say what I'm about to say, like the causal connection between the two, now I'm suggesting that they are two and not one. But maybe I am saying that they are two facets that can influence each other. Um, so anyway, this is just kind of philosophical reflections on the spot about the nature of the mind and relationship to the body. And it's fun to think about. And in any case, I think it's very useful to think that you can use your body to improve the health of your mind and you can use your mind to improve the health of your body. And although these are ultimately one system, I think there are, there are different facets of a system that ultimately contribute to the state of the whole system. Well, I just want to add a, a couple of thoughts that are getting triggered by this conversation, which I also find very, very fascinating. Um, and one is that I do find a really useful distinction between the thinking mind and the observing mind. Mm -hmm. and, and that really does come out of mindfulness practice, mm -hmm. and just psychology. But it is this notion that, you know, we, we, often just get lost in thinking and we believe that that is who we are that that is the truth and of course it it isn't but we have a very hard time knowing that that's not truth with a capital t unless we develop the ability to step back from our own thinking and observe it mm. <laughs> that is a I don't know quite how to explain that, but mm -hmm. I do know that that is very possible to do. Yes. It's possible to learn that without too much time and effort. And then it's, if you can really learn to separate and realize that all these terrible, frightful things we're thinking are not true, we get a little freedom from them. They, the thoughts might can keep circulating, but by not believing them or not attaching to them, we get some freedom from them. So that was one thought. The other thought, which is really getting to be a little bit speculative, <laughs> is that I find it very interesting that humans are able to share things at the level of thought. Mm. You know, that we... Like even your little experiment of imagining a rainbow. Well, there may be a lot of people that are doing that at the same time and they're having a shared experience, but it is purely at the level of thought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about how fear spreads, big, you know, societal fears like a pandemic or a financial meltdown or, um, you know, war. yeah, war, violence, whatever it is, th those, that energy of fear is spreading from person mm -hmm. to person at the level of thought. Wow, that's true. That's and, you know, um, to me, that just, that speaks to an aspect of who we are as human beings, but also how important it is for any one of us to be working at calming our thoughts, uh, of, of 
you know, holding different kinds of thoughts, of generating um, positive emotions and and feelings, and um, you know, really trying to step out of this um, shared fear, because that's only one way that thoughts spread. We can we can presumably you know spread much more healthy and positive things as well. Right. Right. Yeah. That's 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 thought provoking. <laughs> interestingly enough but you're you're right yeah and I, I kind of see it all just kind of seeing that sort of emotional contagion and just like this the spreading of ideas a little differently with that framework and I like it and the thing that comes to my mind um as you talk about stepping back and observing your thoughts I think there's two kind of analogies that come into my mind. One I like and one I love. The one I like is I do think sometimes it can be helpful to think of it akin to watching a movie. And if a movie is getting like too scary for you, the thing to do is remind yourself it's just a movie. Remind yourself this is not real. And I think that we can do something similar when it comes to anxious thinking. This is just thoughts. These are just thoughts. And you've kind of gotten drawn into them in the same way that we get drawn into movies. But when you remind yourself it's just a movie, I'm actually just sitting in a chair watching it. That's like what we can do when with our thoughts. If you think of your, your mental activity as some type of movie, sometimes it's very important to remind yourself like this is just a movie. These are just, this is just mental activity. And it's not necessarily as real it's only like a movie is real but it's real that it is a movie and so mental activity is real but it's only reality is the fact that it is mental activity so i like that analogy but then the one i love is the analogy of lucid dreaming and i think that anyone who has experienced lucid dreaming when you become aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming knows that the moment you become lucid within the dream everything changes you are no longer affected in the same way by the dream you're no longer um unaware that it's a dream you now know it's a dream and now that you know it's a dream something comes with that which is that a freedom there's freedom to create the dream world there's freedom to navigate it there's just you're not affected in the same way you're not trapped by it and i think that we could say there's something to, along the lines of lucid thinking that we can exercise in daily life hmm. and that is to become aware that you're thinking while you're thinking and as simple as that sounds we get caught up in our thinking in the same way we get caught up in our dreams and when we are having a dream and we don't know it's a dream, we're affected as if it's all really happening. And I think the same thing happens with the stream of thinking that when we get caught up in it and we lose track of the fact that it's kind of like a dream, we are affected by it unnecessarily. Mm. And to bring an awareness, a lucidity to that is quite liberating and mm. gives you way more freedom over your own mind. Yeah, wow. I love that too. And I hadn't hadn't heard it put quite that way. Okay. I'm glad we share the love for that. Yeah. I don't I don't know honestly if I made it up or if I heard it. I may have heard it and forgotten, but uh 
or I might have made it up. Who knows? In any case, I think it's a good idea. I think it's useful. Yeah, agreed. Well, I'm aware of the time. We've been talking for an hour and a half, and I do feel like we could go on and on and on. But, you know, all you YouTube listeners out there, I look at the audience retention rates, and I know you're falling off after 30 minutes. But then again, I'm only talking to the people now who have listened to the end. So it's really you that we appreciate tremendously. You know, I, I this is the... I believe 52nd episode of this podcast we're about three years into it and i just have gained so much from this you know speaking to people like you and so many other experts i've just learned so much and and more and more i'm hearing back from the audience and it's so encouraging and exciting so i just want to thank you dr emmons for joining me and i want to thank all of the followers of the psychology is podcast this is an extremely meaningful endeavor. Mm-hmm.